0: Personally I don't care if the whole planet turns into a mushroom. I shall stay because I don't like an unsolved mystery. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 7 where we're looking at Mission to Destiny, written by Terry Nation, directed by Pennard Roberts, who is back for his third episode, having Mm. already done Time Squad and Spacefall. Yes, that's right. And we praised him a lot on his work in Spacefall, not so much Time Squad. (laughs) So we'll see where he lands here. Uh, This is the first ratings drop we have. The ratings actually dropped down to 9.6 million. Right. Which isn't, like, terrible. I mean, it's the same as the web got, Mm. but it sort of shows that I think that that initial six-episode trend upwards has sort of stopped, and they kind of settle around here for a while, I think.
1: Mm.
0: So, Richard, Mission to Destiny, what are your thoughts?
1: I'll start by saying this isn't one I remember either time it was shown on the ABC here, whether I just contrived to miss it or I just made no impression on me, I'm not sure. So this is an episode I very much came to as an adult, Look, I certainly had a good enough time watching it, and I wasn't really checking my watch or anything, but I probably couldn't say this was better than average, I don't think.
0: I found this to be very much a table wine, (laughs) in that you can sit there, you can drink it, it's perfectly (laughs) pleasant. As you said, at no time was I looking at my watch. I wasn't bored during this at all. It doesn't leave a lasting impression, though. It is very straightforward. Look, I, I enjoy it, and this is one like the web that sort of I have a bit of a special memory of, because after, Years of just having those compilation takes. Yeah. The web and mission to destiny were those first like new episodes I had never seen.
1: We've made a joke, obviously, about, you know, two blokes over analysing the series forty years on. I actually kinda of think this is one watch once or twice, it's probably not that bad. I don't think it's one that stands up to repeated viewings.
0: No, it doesn't have the depth or nuance that a lot of other No,
1: there are a couple of holes in it, and they do start to become more apparent, I think.
0: When you watch it on repeated viewing? Yes. Yeah, look, you're right. I think a lot of it actually holds together very well, and we'll talk about it, but you're right. There are a couple of plot holes that you just cannot excuse. Like, no. They, they are just plot holes.
1: Paul Darrow in his autobiography says that uh, the grind of writing an entire season was starting to tell on Terry Nation by this point. So he actually got an unused script for a police show... <laughs> dusted it off, and then just turned it into a Blake 7 script.
0: Yeah, look, that does show it is a bit of a police procedural.
1: And I was going to say, it's actually fairly lacklustre from a production point of view as well. It's quite bland. If you look at the costumes, they're very samey. They're sort of, you know, all in single colours with the big flared collars. Yeah, it,
0: it's the same pattern with a slightly different colour and size. Pre-
1: pretty much. Obviously, Paul Darrow gets to take centre stage, but... I got the impression this one perhaps was a little rushed.
0: Of course, being Episode 7, we are now at the exact midpoint of the season. Yes. Which, I mean, it's something from our point of view. Yeah, we made it this far. (laughs) We made it this far. (laughs) One-eighth through. (laughs) But you're right, I think there are a couple of really good episodes to come. Mm. And then we do get into that second half of Season 1, which is quite notorious for for sort of struggling to get it all together. Yeah, I
1: think that the latter part of season one, and we'll have those discussions obviously in a few weeks, but that's really, I think, where getting Terry Nation to write all 13 episodes really starts to bite.
0: Yeah, we're not there yet. So the introduction makes it very clear that this is going to be a space episode. It's very well set up. There's a very effective point of view shot. It's got that wonderful cello music by Dudley Simpson. Yes. And we, we don't know where we are. We're on a ship, we think somebody's doing something, somebody's then brutally killed, and it's, you know, well, what's going on here? Cut to the Liberator. Yeah, it
1: does really set up that something mysterious is happening.
0: Yes, and that this is not going to be a Federation episode or probably isn't Mm. going to be a Travis episode. Not that at this stage we know Travis episodes are going to be a thing, but but we know that. (laughs) The other thing to sort of mention about the opening is seen on its own the model for... The Ortega, the ship that's going to Destiny, is very, very basic. But that does kind of work in terms of when you think of it as being a very functional sort of ship. But also, when you then put it up against the Liberator, it really does reinforce, again, just what a big, powerful exotic alien ship this thing is compared to your pissy little freighter.
1: Yes, we told you in the episode, the Ortega, it's an older ship, it's a civilian ship, it's obviously not a particularly flashy ship. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and it's good that the models reflect that, and that's probably also conveniently cheap. That's the one I think that was made out of the perfume containers or something. Uh, It certainly looks like it, yes. Yeah. So there's a few aspects we're going to sort of take... On their own and work our way through which i think is a lot easier than mm. just retelling the mystery because we assume at this stage everybody who's listening to this episode
1: knows who done it
0: yeah knows who done it so if you don't know who done it go and watch the episode and then come back to our <laughs> analysis because we're about to spoil it fairly heavily yeah, that's right. by telling you who done it so sarah done it yeah <laughs> so her plan if you work your way through with all the different bits of exposition and, and disclosure and all the rest of it the first part of her plan is to burn out the communicators mm-hmm. and that's described by Dr. Kendall as being a deliberate act of sabotage. So yep. they clearly know then something is going on but I guess the implication is don't really want to believe it
1: mm.
0: which is an odd mindset. We'll talk a bit about that, I think. She then knocks out the crew with a sono vapour from a limited supply that he's going to run out.
1: Yep, They are all meant to go to sleep. While well, she obviously runs around in her gas mask or whatever.
0: Yeah, so she damages yeah. the ship by destroying the ice on Crystal, as Avon points out, even if they get the engines working again, they can't actually go anywhere because they can't see, mm-hmm. which is you know, a nice little bit of realistic yep. space physics. It fails at that point because the ventilator on the flight deck has been closed by the pilot, yep. so he doesn't fall asleep, he's found, he's murdered. At that point, she presumably takes her mask off and falls asleep so that she doesn't around suspicion, and we yes. see her, she's found to be asleep in her quarters. And then she just waits for the Allies to follow the homing beacon and find the disabled ship, pick her and the nitrotobe up, and mm. go away and sell it. Now, one part of the plan that's never explicitly explained, there's there's a number of theories, is at what point Dortman is killed and at what point the life capsule is done. Uh. Now, Avon speculates that Sarah kills Dortmund after Blake and Avon and Callie arrive on the ship. Yep. As she does it to cover herself. I actually reckon that makes no sense. I actually reckon that, if that was her plan, she would have put Raffert, the pilot, into the life capsule because he was already dead. Yes, that's right. So I actually reckon the life capsule was part of her plan all along. Mm. So she went and killed Dortman before she even went to the flight deck. Yep. So he's fallen asleep, very easy to kill him. Yep. Hold your fingers over his nose for a couple of minutes or something while he's asleep.
1: Yeah, well, that's right.
0: And so he was already dead, then Raffert is an extra death. However, it's Blake and Avon and Kelly arriving that means that she can't put... ...Dortman into the life capsule, hence he sort of stuffed on that shelf. Um, so I actually reckon Dortmund was always part of the planning kill mm. first. Uh, and I think the episode bears that out, but Avon disagrees.
1: Yes. Although no, he does actually say he's not sure when Dortmund was killed at one point. So no, that is true, that is true.
0: Rafford gives us the very convenient five four one two four clue, which this is one of those things as I think you're alluding to, Richard, as a plot device. I think it works once Mm. on the initial viewing, particularly because Kelly says five, four, one, two, four, you sort of mentally process it that way. Once, you know, on repeated viewings, it is so obviously Sarah.
1: And I think probably part of the issue is when Avon sort of does the big reveal at the end, that's quite a drawn out process.
0: It is an incredibly drawn out process to the point that he's written the A, the R, and the other A, and they're still crowding around going, oh, I wonder who it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I get that. It needs to be a sort of a dramatic reveal and show that the five is really nice. But you'll sort of think at the point at which he's written A, R, and started to write the A, one turns around, oh, it was Sarah.
1: Yes, but I suppose you have to give her the big, so now you know, moment. <laughs> She's holding the gun on them. Yes.
0: Now... Blake rocking up obviously interferes with this plan. Mm -hmm. The big interference is obviously his willingness to take the neutrotope and take it back to Destiny so that she doesn't have it anymore.
1: Yeah, unless you sort of think that either Dr. Kendall was in on the plan or there is something else going on. Again, probably on first viewing you wouldn't notice it, but once you've seen the episode and you watch it again and you know what's coming... That doesn't really
0: work. I think it can be reasonably easily reconciled without getting into too much fan wank in that there are a couple of solutions. Certainly we know that Dr. Kendall sends her to go get the the neutrotope. Yes. And presumably he knows that she knows the code or she might be the backup.
1: He takes it out, he shows it to Blake and then he puts it back in the lockbox when Avon comes into the room. You don't actually see him put it back in the safe. True. I do have to make the point, it takes him a very long time to realise that, oh, I wonder if the neutrotope's safe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it's sort of basically at the point where the plot really requires the neutrotope to be introduced.
0: It does, but look, Sarah said to get the neutrotope, so at that point she's able to palm it and send it off. My assumption has always been that if he'd said to, you know, Mandarin or Sondheim, mm. go get the neutrotope, she would have sort of followed him out, pulled a gun and basically taken the ship. Because she shows her willingness to do that at the end. Yeah. And so I reckon she would have done that, but... I think you've made a really good point there. Several times, it actually makes more sense if Dr. Kendall is in on the plot. So he's the one who sends Sarah to go get it, knowing that she's going to palm it. He's the one that distracts the crew. Mm -hmm. He's the one that does a few other things. And at the end, he's very keen to make sure that Sarah gets off the ship with him.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Now, that may not be, in fact, it probably isn't Terranation's intent. But uh, listeners, I encourage you to go and watch this episode again with this in your mind, and it actually makes more sense if Kendall's in on it. Which is a nice little detail. And certainly you could imagine Kendall and Sarah sort of saying to each other, hey, you've seen these guys are on board. Well, look, if either of us is rumbled, don't rumble the other one because, you know, I'll come bust you out of jail or something. Yeah, afterwards. that's right. Yeah. We can keep this going. Yeah. We're given a few little red herrings, as you're given with any good murder mystery. <laughs> So there's the bit where Mandarin is, makes the big thing about the, the neutrotope must stay on the ship and it can't be left and he votes against it. And when Sarah votes for Blake to take the you know, doesn't quite hit her, but clearly wants to. And he is really unhappy. He's really pissed off about it. And he's then seen doing something suspicious in the bedroom later.
1: Now, I have to just stop at that point. Kelly's hiding to try and observe you. <laughs> The door opens into the room and yes. she is pressed up against... So she's actually basically standing in the doorway.
0: yeah try, Trying to hide yes. in plain sight. Not a very well-directed moment, that one, no. But again, Mandarin is very clearly set up to be a suspicious character.
1: Yes, he is. And plus he has his fight with Sarah later on.
0: He does. Although I would argue that once we get his I knew you'd be here moment, mm. that is a very heavy drop that it is probably Sarah.
1: Yeah. They do make an effort to try and set up. I mean, Sondheim is also nasty and, and sort of creepy. And yes. That scene where he follows Callie down into the hold and then puts his hands on her neck. Yes. That, that is really creepy, actually, when you watch that.
0: It is. So we're given a couple of suspicious characters. Even Levitt is sort of shown to be the, the loner and doesn't have an alibi.
1: No, Uh, and look, I guess that is a murder mystery trope. You need to set up that everybody has a motive to commit the crime.
0: Yes, Uh, unfortunately we are sort of limited to a 50-minute episode here, Mm. so we do get that one very long, quite laborious scene of everybody introducing their name and saying where they were, which, look, it, it works for a detective show, in something that's a bit more fast-paced, like Lake 7, that does slow the plot down. Funnily
1: enough, I did wonder while watching this whether... I mean, we mentioned a minute ago, Paul Darrow makes the point that this yeah. was a rejected script. I actually was wondering whether it was something for Who Whodunit. Because Whodunit used to have that thing mm. where they introduced the characters, you know, the panel would sit there and interview them, and they'd show the film clips and yes, stuff. Yes, yes. Whether it was actually a rejected script for that.
0: You're right, but, it does fit that format quite well. Mm. Another little side note for the next time you watch it, all the single people on the Ortega have got single cabins, but clearly Sarah and Mandarin are a couple, and they've yep. got a cabin. Sonheim and Pasco also share a cabin. Now, just think about that the next time you watch it, particularly with Pasco's line, Don't mind him, <coughs> he lacks affection. Again, I don't think it's Terry Nation's intent, <laughs> but I invite you to watch it thinking that yes, next time. We'll just leave that one there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> All of these bits of the murder plot do work. Mm. The only place where they fall down is there is a little bit of willing suspension of disbelief by the characters. For example, Kelly finds the homing device, tells Avon, Oh, I found this thing, and conveniently he's distracted before he can say, Oh, this is a homing device. So, and the same as you said with Kendall not mentioning the neutrotope until he the has pr-
1: to. Pl- the plot requires him to. So yes. there, are
0: those, there are those points. Along the way, Mandarin is killed, so you've yep. got you know, that classic detective trope of the most obvious suspect is the first one to be killed. That's right, and that means Afon's instinct is wrong. <laughs> That's right. Sondheim is set up to be potentially that killer, but that is yep. quickly dismissed. And again, in a very reasonable way, that the killer clearly committed the sabotage, the what is it, electric knife or insulated saw.
1: Yes, or whatever it is, isn't there. Isn't there, so it can't be hidden. Plus, of course, there is that thing in the murder mysteries, the person found standing over the body is never, ever the killer.
0: No, that's right. We are are very heavily in those tropes. And then it ends with Avon giving a very classic, I've gathered you all together because one of you is a killer.
1: He, I think, is having a lot of fun with this. He's pacing the room, hands behind the back doing the dramatic pauses.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like, well, look, if this science fiction show doesn't get another series, maybe I'll get a detective show. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, he does take a long time to reveal the writing. You would think, and again, if we were doing another version of the script, you know, with the benefit of 40 years hindsight, you think he would come in and go, right, arrest Sarah, or I'll tie Sarah up. Mm. I'll now explain why you've done yes. that. As opposed to, I'll explain And then we'll work out what to do with her. But
1: again, look, that is the detective story thing, of course. You know, Hercule Poirot gets the whole big scene at the end of the movie where he explains exactly what's going on and
0: then the killers do the... So now you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, look, that's very good. By that stage, Sarah runs off. She thinks that her friends are coming. Blake comes instead. She's blown up with her friends and... The neutral trope's off to save Destiny, yes. unless Dr. Kendall can smuggle them away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we've made some fun of the detective tropes, but all the bits of evidence do actually work up. There's no twist where you sit there and go, really? Everything no. does make sense. S- Sarah's
1: plan and the way it's presented is quite well thought out.
0: Yes, it is. It works well, and it's kind of cool to have a female villain as well. Mm. Which, when you consider we've just had Servine. One of the two protagonists in the web was a female. Yes. Uh, so, we've actually got another very strong female villain. Mm. So, I want to talk a bit more now just about Destiny and the Destinians, <laughs> which is what my decided to call that race. <laughs> the crew of the Ortega. Yeah. So... Destiny, it's made clear, is an Earth-settled colony. Mm-hmm. It is not in the Federation. No. It's said to have resisted Federation membership, but the implication I took there was it was more diplomatic than military at this stage.
1: It's obviously some fair way out. It's either a fair way off the busy space lanes and potentially perhaps you know right on the edges of what's Federation space.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's very explicitly an agricultural... Mm. colony, which does tie in very much with that 1970s vibe of people going away and getting back to nature, you know, that that good life sort of thing. It
1: is, yes, that self-sufficiency type deal and wanting the simple life. And
0: and we see that in other sci-fi shows, particularly Doctor Who, this idea that a lot of early Earth colonists would be the type to want to escape from a crowded planet, get back to nature. It it fits in very nicely there. Their planet has been taken over by fungus, which is why they need the neutrotope. Mm. Now, there's a lot of speculation, probably going back 40 years, in fan circles, that the fungus is actually a Federation plot to get them in. That doesn't really work, though, because if their one economic commodity is agriculture, Mm. taking them over by destroying their agriculture would seem to be a kind of a pointless gambit. it
1: would. Having said that, if it was the Federation, they really are total bastards, because presumably the Nutritope has been bought from the Federation.
0: (laughs) I'm not negating the idea that it could be a Federation plot, but it seems to me unreasonable for the Federation to, yeah, as I say, wipe out the main reason for wanting the colony in the first place. Mm. Unless it's just to make a point, but given the Federation hasn't claimed it, that doesn't really work on. No, Their ship is a Galaxy-class ship, which is pre-Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> as you said, it is out of Galaxy that's 50 years old, which, again, as part of our universe building, I make the point that there is clearly you know, manufacturing all that yes. outside the Federation. So these yeah. outer planets can pr- produce their own craft and everything. Yeah. It's more than just a Federation. Unfortunately, whilst there's some really well-accomplished and well-credentialed actors in this, the crew are phenomenally dull. And I kind of have to wonder, given that these are... You know, most of these are actors who had, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of mm. credits, I kind of have to wonder if that's the director just not giving them something to do.
1: It is very lacklustre, as we said earlier. Maybe a couple of the actors they'd hired didn't turn up, so they just went up to the BBC, <laughs> the BBC bar or whatever and just said, hey, look, we've got a couple of roles, do you want to come
0: downstairs? Yeah, it's also possible if it was a bit of a rush script that there just wasn't the rehearsal time. Well,
1: that's the thing, because this is the second one filmed after the series had started screening. Duel was recorded before this. But as we said last week, we are now at a point where the clock is always ticking. And there are deadlines. And we we will talk probably more about the production side of Blake 7, perhaps a little later in the season. But the production for Series 1 of Blake 7 was really chaotic. And there is a point somewhere around here where they're working on four different episodes for four different directors in one week. And I did sort of wonder whether this perhaps is the one that just got squeezed in amongst the ones around it, perhaps?
0: Uh, yeah, look, you would still hope that a good director could get something more out of this cast. Mm. So, look, I don't want to stick the knife into you know, dear old Penn and Roberts, but he is the one that's responsible for getting those performances, and he didn't do it here.
1: No, it does feel very sort of bland at times.
0: Look, it does, and as you said, the, the very sort of flat lighting, mm. the very flat sets, the the similarity of the costumes doesn't help. And the other thing is we just don't have time. By the time the crew wake up, Mm. We've got about 40 minutes with them. Yeah. That's including all the time we're away on The Liberator and the conclusion. Mm. So we don't get a lot of time. We get to know that Mandarin is the suspicious, angry one. Mm. We get to know that Sondheim is the creepy one. <laughs> we get to know that John Leeson is the tedious one. Yeah, Like who's, who's always, you know, point, <laughs> pointing out the rules and stuff. Like yeah. He, there is that attempt. At
1: Levitt is the sort of strange one, really.
0: Yeah. I mean, and she also gets what I think must get the award for the worst delivered line so far in the series, where she just comes in. There's been another killing. Completely flat. (laughs) (laughs) completely flat.
1: Yeah. It's a really nice idea, and I think doing a murder mystery, look, is obviously something really different for a space series, but this one just really doesn't quite come off, I don't think. I
0: like it, but it falls apart very quickly. Mm. As I say, if you just watch it and enjoy it, it works, but we've noted Kendall doesn't wake up, and the first thing he does is... Oh my god! I've fallen asleep. Is the trap safe? No. Nobody mentioned that Dortmund isn't in the room where they're all going through the crew manifest until, until right
1: at the end of the scene. Yeah.
0: Oh, by the way, Dortmund's not here. Like as opposed to saying before you start, dude, could we wait for Dortmund? Yeah. You know that sort of thing. The idea of there being a stowaway on board. Look, it's a nice idea, but let's face it; it sort of goes nowhere. And Avon pretty much dismisses Sh- it straight shoots away. Shoots it down
1: straight away. I mean, look. I guess it perhaps shows that the crew clearly are more prepared to believe that than they are that one of them's a killer.
0: But look, what I can certainly grant them is at least the world they build up works, or it does build the Blake 7 universe mm. you know, into another level, and it's a break from the Federation. So we've spoken about the Ortega and the Destinians. Let's talk about the Liberator. Mm. So we've got an opening shot on the Liberator. You would think
1: they would be perhaps... A little bit more wary, considering how things turned out for them last time they went to help somebody in distress. And sadly, they'll do it again. (laughs) Yeah, spoilers, but it it happens again. Particularly considering it's Jenna, actually, who's saying they're in trouble and they need help. When she was the one, really, who was quite wary of the capsule in Time Squad.
0: It is interesting. Watching all of these episodes individually, you don't notice these things. Mm. But one thing that is part of the raison d'etre of this podcast, to look at them in order and look at, yes. look at patterns, is that you do find the, oh, it's a ship with a distress call, let's go across and look, actually is a very easy opening that's used several times.
1: It is, and it happens at least three, and and if you count deliverance, four times in this season.
0: Yes. But they go over, we have the whole exploration of the ship. Mm-hmm. An interesting point that I noted was that, although we follow Blake, and he's the one who works out that it's so no open and mm-hmm. what's going on, when he then meets up again with Avon, Avon is also allowed to go, I've worked out that Sono vapor. Yes. So he's allowed to sort of maintain his credibility or show equal credibility with yes,
1: the He is very much the ship's technical expert. He's the one overseeing the repairs. He even knows that sticking a tube in the, what is it, the primary feed of the <laughs> air conditioning system is a botch job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, which is good because it plays it as being amateur, but he gets to do all that sort of thing. And as we said, it gives Paul Darrow a chance to lead. And he, he actually plays it in a much more Blake-like way. He doesn't go overboard on this.
1: As we said earlier, I think he is having a lot of fun with this, I think.
0: I think so. As I think is actually the character of Avon, he's finding this quite stimulating. Well,
1: it is very much. I mean, Kelly stays because clearly she wants to help these people and it's the right thing to do. Avon, very clearly, I mean, he says he doesn't care if their planet turns into <laughs> a giant mushroom. He wants to stay because there's a mystery to solve.
0: <laughs> Which is an interesting character point for him. Obviously, the main part of the Liberator is that they take the neutral tape and they're going to take it to Destiny and all the rest of that, but there is a large shower of meteors in the way. Yes. This is the part of the plot that I was flagging earlier that doesn't Mm. work.
1: It's going to take them four times as long to get around the meteor field if they don't go through it. They have the question about, really, could the ship stand going through that? They do actually obviously go through it.
0: There is a lovely moment as they go through where they're getting towards the end and Blake says to Villa... Can you see the end? Yes, no, maybe. Which isn't Villa? It's maybe. And Blake gives him just the most contemptuous look, Mm. which we are starting to see more and more now the idea of Blake having a bit of a temper. Yes. And that that really comes across in that scene. Gareth Thomas doesn't have a it. It's just the look that is is, intense. Yes, he is
1: really unhappy with Villa. But they get through the storm. Now, we're told that they have no power.
0: Yeah, they've basically used everything they can to get there.
1: And really... I did wonder whether the asteroid field was really just an excuse to have a reason for them to open the box. And and we noticed Blake actually knows the combination for the box. Mm. But, and this is the gaping hole, because suddenly they have to go back.
0: Yes, and there there is actually no way that they could have got back in the time they need to, uh, particularly if you allow for the fact that they need to recharge the power cells. So either they've recharged the power cells and gone through the field, mm. or they've gone around the other way, which would take them sort of four days.
1: They couldn't do that at high speed because they have no power anyway.
0: No. So, as I say, it's a great show because all the SARA stuff works really, really mm. well. The Liberator stuff doesn't. No, which is disappointing.
1: The rest of the crew, obviously, other than Avon and Callie, don't really have a lot to do this week. Blake gets some stuff initially when they teleport over to the ship.
0: As I said the Liberator subplot is the part of this that doesn't quite work. No. So before we get into our regular segments, just a few little random bits and pieces that haven't fitted in nicely before. Again, it's interesting to note for me that this isn't a mission, and where during the missions Blake is very much you will come with me, you will come with me. Mm. He's almost like, kind of, who wants to come? Avon, hey, you up for this? Let, let's go. It's very relaxed.
1: Yes. There's a nice moment there where he asks Villa... All right, I'm going across. Will you come with me,
0: <laughs> Ali? Villa? You don't need me to come over. No, I need you to work the teleboard. Right.
1: <laughs> and you see Michael Keating just give that big sigh of relief.
0: So that's really, really good. On a production point... There's a really weird mix of film and video here. Now, usually on BBC productions of this time, you would use video for studio Mm. and film for outdoor, or location footage of some sort. And so you can usually see a very distinct jump in picture quality between those two. Yes. That jump is evidenced here, but they're just filming in different parts of the set.
1: They are, I think.
0: The production
1: reason behind it is, and it's part of probably the monolithic bureaucratic nature of the BBC, series were given a filming allocation. And I think it is one of those things, if they didn't use it every week, it'd be taken away from them.
0: Right. It works reasonably well for the sets in the engineering section, Mm. because at least it sort of feels a bit more sort of techie or isolated. Where it's just used for random corridors, it doesn't work
1: couple other notes I had, probably I think a lot of people pick up on Blake knocking the knob off the ventilator control when he's <laughs> <laughs> in the cabin and you hear it hit the floor and roll off. You notice when Kelly falls asleep, she says, alone. Yeah. Which I'm assuming perhaps that's where she goes when she's asleep. She can't commune with the other R&R or whatever. Yeah,
0: okay, I hadn't thought of that.
1: Perhaps it's clearly something It's in her subconscious.
0: Mm. We've was... mentioned Blake's angry streak. Oh. We should mention here that without really knowing what's going on, he sets charges to blow up the other ship and the Ortega. He
1: does sort of make that leap that the ship coming up on the Ortega clearly is bad and that they deserve to die, yes. basically.
0: It is summary execution, which, look, it's important from a plot point of view because it adds to that tension. You know, There's now mm. a time they've got to get away and all the rest and of And the it.
1: cast tell us that he's cutting it too fine and whatever.
0: Yeah, and there's a big satisfying explosion to end the yeah. episode. So I wouldn't want it not to happen. But again, as we start to look... At the progression of Blake's character, mm. this I think is a very important little stepping stone along that path. Speaking of angry characters, shall we mention Avon?
1: Yes, his little uh, sort of struggle with Sarah at the end. Mm.
0: What we've mentioned before, Avon can get particularly angry and violent when he feels betrayed. Yes. And I think we can now add to that even more specifically when he is betrayed by a woman.
1: He comes out, grabs her, she obviously initially manages to push
0: him off. Mm. And after he's pulled no punches, literally, mm. he says, take her away, because I really started to enjoy that. You better get an out of here. I really rather enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, which does sort of make you wonder what would have happened if the other crew members <laughs> hadn't been there. But
0: Yeah. And again, it's a very disturbing moment, but I think a very important character moment.
1: It is. And again, we will see that expanded on later.
0: And look, you could make the argument as well. If you're going to have strong female villains, they need to be not treated badly, but you need to treat them as being as dangerous and as problematic as a male villain would be. Mm-hmm. And so if they're fighting back, well, we've got to fight them back. Uh, I think it does make Sarah that a little bit more dangerous. Uh, my final point before we move into our general segments is just to uh, make a point that Avon does get to write out his notes with a space pen. <laughs> yeah. A, this cool big texter thing.
1: And Callie actually, early in the episode, has a space torch
0: <laughs> that has a cable that attaches to a power pack. Ah. (laughs) Gotta love space things (laughs) But we'll now move into our regular segments Mm. Because we're into episode 7 What we're going to do with our regular segments Is just remind everybody what they are And what we're doing here Mm -hmm. For any listeners that have joined us since uh, episode 0 And welcome if that's you Our first segment is pretty straightforward And that's guest cast Where we look at some Mm. of the guest cast And what they've done There are a number of guest cast here Uh, So, look, I'll make a start with Dr. Kendall, Mm -hmm. who's played by Barry Jackson. He has over 40 years of credits. Oh,
1: he's in a lot
0: of stuff. He's in a lot of stuff. Even recently, he was in 76 Midsummer Murders as Dr. Bollard. Okay. Uh, He was in Birds of a Feather. He did 13 episodes of Hard Cases. He was in Secret Army. Uh, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Colour. Really? Really. And four episodes of Adam Adam and Lives. They must have been as different characters. Yeah, it was. Although, for genre fans, he's probably most famous as Drax from the Armageddon factory (laughs) in Doctor (laughs) Who. Drax is the name. Drax. Come on, B. Class of 92. Not here. Drax. Yeah, we was on the tech course together. Yeah, he has a terrible accent. He was also Jeff Garvey in Mission to the Unknown. Okay. And he was... Yeah, sorry, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> and he was Ascarus in the Romans. Right. So he's done three Doctor Whos. Now, Sarah
1: is played by Beth Morris. She actually has credits up until into the 2000s, Mm. I suspect maybe her best known thing, she is involved in what was one of the most controversial scenes in British television.
0: Yes, and one of the most famous cuts in British television.
1: Yes. And we are referring to her appearance in I, Claudius, where she played Drusilla, uh, Caligula's sister. Yes. Which ends with her, well, basically being murdered by Caligula.
0: Being gutted by Caligula. Yes. 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 So famously, at the end of that episode, Caligula having got his sister pregnant wants to relive Zeus's history of, you know, take, yes. draw, drawing the child from the womb and all that sort of thing.
1: And then devouring the fetus, yes. Yes.
0: Uh, so, look, we see him, he drugs her, he chains her up, and then he, he proceeds to gutter, which you see all from behind. Mm. And then you hear the screaming from behind the door where Claudius comes up, what's going on? He opens the door, Caligula, played by John Hurt. Yes. Brilliant, brilliant performance.
1: I must draw the child from the Queen of Heaven's womb and swallow it whole so that a new child may grow out of the head of Zeus.
0: Yes, darling. Draw it out. Let Zeus take the child and... Then let's go to bed. Our queen's very sleepy.
1: What's that? What are you going to do? There'll be
0: no pain, I know it. Pain? But why should... (laughs) Caligula? We are immortal gods. Caligula comes out with the blood on the face. And just don't go in there. Don't go in there. And then, what happens on the screen is the door opens a little bit.
1: Oh, well, Claudius looks in. Is obviously utterly repulsed yeah. by what he sees.
0: Yeah. Then, as he walks off, we cut to the credits. Yes. Originally, the door was to swing open behind him and we saw what happened.
1: Yes, and I believe the legend is that it was actually cut prior to transmission. Yes. And then it was cut again after transmission, after people complained. Yes. Yes.
0: So that was, yeah, quite a notorious one. She was also in nine episodes of The District Nurse. She was Dora in the big 1974 David Copperfield production. Okay. But yeah, lots of credits.
1: Now, of course, we mentioned Pasco earlier, which is John Leeson. Easily most famous
0: for playing K-9 in Doctor Who. I was actually going to go with, he was the original Bungle the Bear in Rainbow, but... <laughs> well, yes, you're right. He did do 50 episodes as Bungle in Rainbow. <laughs> uh, but look, in Doctor Who, he was K-9. He also did a voice in Remembrance of the Daleks and was Dugin in The Power of Crawl.
1: Oh, yes. And indeed, he will be back in Black 7.
0: Mandrian yes. is played by Stephen Tate, who, again, it's not a big role, but probably his most famous role is as Chizik in Black Adder. Chizik!
1: Certainly on television, he has had quite a lengthy career in musical theatre, really is probably where he made his name. He was Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar, he was part of the cast of the original production of Cats, Mm -hmm. uh, with Bonnie Langford. Yes, and Brian (laughs) Blessed. Yes, indeed. He was also in Les Miserables.
0: Yeah, he was in the 2012 film version of Les Mis as well, playing Fauchelavant who is the old dude that falls under the cart at the start and then helps Jean Valjean get away later on. Right. Yeah. He has a couple of other memorable television roles. He turns up in Yes Minister as the militant union activist Billy Fraser. Okay. And he is Alan in four episodes of The Survivors. Oh, yes, actually is in Survivors. Now, at Sondheim, we had Nigel Humphreys.
1: Now, he... Perhaps, certainly in genre terms, he's best known for his role in Warriors of the Deep for Doctor Who. Yes, as Bulick. Yes, who I think is actually the only character
0: who survives. Other than the regulars, he's the only survivor in that show, yes. Yep. He does turn up in 11 episodes of No Job for a Lady with Penelope Keith. He plays the policeman in Westminster. I'll take your word for that, but (laughs) go on. (laughs) He has a lot of stuff. He's in eight episodes of The Practice. He does a Juliet Bravo. He does a Bill. 21 episodes of Softly Softly Task Force. So he was actually put out of a job by Blake Seven. He was. <laughs> so, yeah, he does play a lot of cops and sort of, you know... I could
1: um, believe that looking at him, actually.
0: Yeah. But 32 episodes of Coronation Street in 1970. Okay. So he, he did work quite prolifically yeah. for a long time. Never really got a big role, though. Much like Grovane.
1: Oh, Carl Forgione, I assume it's pronounced.
0: Uh, yes. He also has Doctor Who credits. He was Nimrod in Ghostlight. Oh, yes. And Planet of the Spiders. Yes. One of Lupton's gang in Planet yes, of the Spiders. Yes, that's right. Yeah. He was in Star Cops, which is the Chris Boucher show. Yes, that it after is, Blake 7. Uh, after Black 7. He worked with Rick Mail in The New Statesman. Right. Most of it, I can't remember him in that. No. And uh, he was in The Borgias as well, which was a big, big drama.
1: Yes, it was. Yeah.
0: And finally, Kate Coleridge, who plays Levitt. Look, she has a lot of minor roles, most in the 70s and the early 80s. She wasn't in an episode of Bergerac, but... Her biggest role was 71 episodes of The Cedar Tree in the early 70s. We should mention that Dortmund's body is played by Stuart Fell yes. in the first of 12 appearances in Black 7. Well, there you go. And what a good fall he did. <laughs> <laughs> so our next segment is the Liberator database, where we like to compile all the things that sort of make up part of this universe as we go along and watch it. So we learn here, and there's an interesting point about the Liberator, Zen now has enough material on galaxy class spacecraft it would take Blake 128 hours to digest it all now that means either since they got the cipher machine zen's just sort of been tapping into all these federation databanks and is getting all this information or were the original owners of the liberator knowledgeable enough about the federation and earth worlds that it already had all that information
1: mm, that's an interesting idea
0: you would assume it would have to be in the databanks you would think you, you would think so, but it is just interesting. I mean, there, there are ways it could happen. Obviously, we learn now that the Force War can deal with meteors and go through yep. meteor storms. Yep. And they mentioned they've done it before.
1: Probably the big thing with this is, and it is a consistent theme in Blake 7, that space travel takes time. It's going to take them 84 hours, or just under four days, obviously, to get to Destiny. But, yeah, space travel is not instantaneous, it's not quick. There is a lot of distance between planets.
0: And particularly for the Ortega, which isn't, isn't nearly in the technological league of the Liberator. No. It, it's taking them sort of weeks.
1: Well, yeah, you would have to think they'd have to be pretty close to destiny, actually, if it's only going to be five months at sublight speed. But, uh,
0: yes. Yes.
1: Uh, we have the thing where the power banks have been drained. It really shows us, that while the Liberator is very fast, it's very powerful, it's a very impressive ship, Its power is not unlimited when they're low on power. It's a good thing they weren't intercepted by pursuit ships.
0: No, I wonder what would happen if that happened.
1: Yes, just hold that thought.
0: (laughs) And as we've discussed in our conversation, we do continue to build up the idea of what's happening in this galaxy, particularly outside the Federation. Yep. Our next segment is what we call, look, it was the 1970s, where we try and look at the time period, what was going on, and how that affected the production and all that. I mentioned earlier that this is very good life, or destiny itself is very good life, and that idea of colonisation. You see it a couple of years before this in the Doctor Who story, The Colony in Space, and a lot of others. So that that idea is very much one of the 1970s.
1: This is very much a standalone episode. It doesn't really tie in to the bigger universe. I suppose in real world, and we get a murder mystery, this is around the time, I think, when there were a few sort of big-budget Agatha Christie's Being done, a few years before this, they'd done Murder on the Iron Express. I think around this time was when Peter Ustinov did Death on the Nile, I think.
0: Oh, yeah, of course, because the goodies are going to send up Murder on the Iron Express about now as well. Yes,
1: that's true, actually. And then I think uh, they'd also done... I think it was a bit after this, there was the Mirror Crack, which was the Miss Marple one.
0: Yeah, it's also, I think the 70s, is kind of the high-water mark for the hard-boiled detective show. Mm. True. We've talked about you know, all the Zed Car rip-offs, the softly, softly Rip-offs.
1: Yeah, the Sweeney.
0: You know, Ironsides coming out from America. Kojak.
1: Yeah, Streets of San Francisco,
0: indeed, even. All of those sort of things are very much mm. in the air at this time.
1: One final note, actually, for that is the costumes. We mentioned sort of the bland costumes, but you look at those collars. I don't think you would do them anywhere else but
0: the 1970s. (laughs) That is definitely a 70s influence. A segment we introduced last episode is Gan Watch. Yes. We probably should reinforce the intention
1: of this segment is not to pick on Gan or David Jackson.
0: No. Because I think
1: he is actually trying very hard with the limited material he's given.
0: Uh, Look, that's right, but I think it is interesting to watch how little his character has. Yeah. But this episode, his character does have a very pivotal role. Yes, he's a drinks waiter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is literally seen going to get the drinks.
1: I mean, look, not that we should be counting lines, but he has 11 lines this episode, and a lot of that is actually just responding to other characters.
0: Or prompting other characters, What is it? what does it do? Yes. Yeah. So, look, that's unfortunate. Gan is very neglected here. And you kind of wonder... Had he been left on the Ortag with Avon, mm. that that actually could have been quite interesting dynamic.
1: It could, because I think probably again just to sort of build Gan up a bit, when he is given something to do, he is very good, and David Jackson is very good. You watch him in some of the earlier episodes in Spacefall; he really becomes a de facto leader of the prisoners when they break out and Blake goes off to find Avon in the computer room.
0: As he does in Cygnus Alpha. Yes,
1: again, exactly the same thing. When they're dumped on Cygnus Alpha, he really becomes a leader of that group.
0: Yeah, so it would have been interesting to see him on the Ortega, but it wasn't to be. Mm. Our second last segment is what we call what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week?
1: And I think we are now very firmly at the point where Chris Boucher is starting to give Avon lines. Yeah, very
0: much so. We have the one about Villa tells him that it's all very quiet and Avon's like, if it should get noisy,
1: be ready. (laughs) Yes, of course, he has probably one of his best known quotes in this episode, I think is, It is frequently easier to be honest when you have nothing to lose.
0: Yes, that is a classic.
1: Actually, no. Probably his best known line, I think, from this episode
0: is, I don't care if their planet turns into a giant mushroom. (laughs) (laughs) Another one, though, is also the one where Kelly's being very philosophical and Mm. does the whole.
1: My people have a saying. A man who trusts can never be betrayed, only mistaken.
0: Life expectancy must be fairly short among your people.
1: I did have a couple others I did want to pull out. There's the moment there where Blake is about to head off and Kelly and Avon are going to stay behind. And Kelly says, we will regard ourselves as hostages against Blake's return. And he gets to come back with, well, thank you, Kelly. What a clever idea. <laughs> but the one that really did make me laugh, and I did wonder whether this was an ad lib from Paul Darrow, is he's got the crew gathered in the room the first time and he introduces the idea that Rafford's death was an accident. But Callie
0: thinks that the death of the pilot, Rafford, was an accident. What do you mean?
1: An accident? A misfortune.
0: It certainly was for him. (laughs) And then laughs. The other one that I had, and this also I think could be an improvisation by Paul Darrow. After Sarah's run out, he just sort of very nonchalantly says, well, she's one of your crew. You should get after her. (laughs) So our final segment is our Player of the Week which is where we get to decide who's made the best contribution or the most noteworthy contribution to the episode. Richard, I've been taking us through this, so it's your turn to pick first. Who's your player of the week?
1: Well, there's really only one candidate, I think, and there has to be Avon this week, because this is his moment to shine.
0: Avon is definitely very good here, and I can understand that. I've gone for someone different. I've gone for Dudley Simpson.
1: Ah, well done.
0: Now, Dudley Simpson, we haven't mentioned yet, but he does a lot of the music. He does, I think, 50 episodes of Blake Seven score. We'll talk about him when we get to our end-of-season special. We're not ignoring you, Dudley. But his score here, I think, is particularly good. He has long periods which he has to fill. He has that really effective cello music. It's very, very memorable. Mm. He proves his versatility, that he's not doing standard Blake 7 stuff all the way through. He's doing more detective stuff. And that particular cello vibe that we played earlier in the episode... I think is really a standout. And we said at the start every now and then, we like to give it to somebody who's part of the production team rather than the on-screen talent. And mm. so this week I'm giving it to Dudley. So that was Mission to Destiny. Look, I enjoyed it. I get that it is not the best episode of Black 7. It's yeah. not the most engaging episode of Black 7. But we've both said we watched this very happily, enjoyed it without looking at our watch. For sure. And, and if you can feel 50 minutes of entertainment, well, job done.
1: Yeah, indeed. I don't know if it's one I'll come back to in a hurry now that I've watched it two or three times for the podcast. (laughs) But, yeah,
0: look, I did enjoy watching it. Likewise. Next week, we're back with Travis Mm. in the episode Jewel. There's a lot to talk about on that one. Yes. But until next time, set a course to escape those pursuit ships. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake Seven. plenty of ready markets for the Nutritone. If it was stolen and sold a man could be wealthy beyond beyond imagining. That thing is a temptation even for those who is with our homes, families and lives at stake. You have nothing at stake, nothing to lose. It is frequently easier to be honest when you have nothing to lose.